Hey, everybody, this is Brian Zimmerman, host of Jazz's Backstage Pass. Listen, before we get into today's episode with keyboardist David Sanchez, just wanted to thank our monthly sponsor. That would be Eric Baldwin. Thank you, Eric, for making this podcast possible. If you too would like to become a monthly sponsor of Jazz's Backstage Pass, all you have to do is click the link in the show description. Thanks a lot, everyone. All right, enjoy today's interview. Hey, everybody. Brian Zimmerman here, executive editor of Jazz Is Magazine and host of Jazz Is Live, coming at you at a Wednesday afternoon. Uh, we've got a really special episode for you today. Uh, keyboardists, you're going to want to pay attention. Jazz fusion fans, you are going to want to pay attention. Fans of classic rock, you're going to want to pay attention too. That's because my guest today is a rock and roll Hall of Famer. Uh, I don't get to say that too often. He was born and raised in a town you might have heard of, uh, Asbury Park, New Jersey, uh, on East Street specifically. That's right. He is David Sanchez, and he was a keyboardist in the East Street Band alongside the boss, Bruce Springsteen. Uh, but that was just the beginning. For this cat. He was also the leader of the band Tone. Uh, he was a session player that performed and recorded alongside the likes of Peter Gabriel, Sting, Jack Bruce, and John Anderson of Yes, who we have had on this very podcast, by the way. Uh, he just released a new album called Eyes Wide Open. That is a snapshot of our times right at this very moment. I mean, he's tackling themes of, you know, oppression, civil unrest, police brutality, and yet it's super, super musical, very deep grooves. Uh, we're going to be talking to him about all of that. So please welcome to Jazz Is Live, the one, the only, David Sanchez. David, are you there? I am right here. Hey, man, thank you so much for joining us. This is Thanks an absolute pleasure. Uh, um, you are, we were talking a little bit about this before the show started, but you're joining us from Hawaii. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh-huh, the island of Kauai. Wow. You're an East Coast guy, you know, grew up in New Jersey. What brought you out to Hawaii, man? Well, I wanted to come to uh, Hawaii since the very first time I came here for work. I was on a tour. I think it was the end of a, oh, I don't remember. It was either the end of a Sting tour or a Peter Gabriel tour. But the, the minute that the plan landed, and it wasn't on this island, the minute they landed, I think we were on uh, Maui or somewhere. The door opened and the air and the sunlight and the whole sensation, I just felt like this is where I belong. It wow. just was like calling to me to like, you need to be here all the time, you know? And yeah. it took many, many years, you know? I really wanted to move here back in the late 90s, really. But uh, there was work going on and other life circumstances. But finally last year, everything sort of coalesced and came together to uh, allow me to do it. And here I am. Very nice, man. How's the scene out there? How's the Hawaii uh, jazz nice, fusion? Man. The weather is fantastic. <laughs> um, you know, I would be on the beach now, except uh, if, except for our, for our interview. But uh, I had a little surgery on my hand uh, last yeah. week, and I can't go in there. You can see that. Can't go in the ocean for a while. I hear uh, you. Yeah, it must be hard to play keys, too. So it's kind oh, of- I can't do any playing for, about, for at least another, like, two weeks or more. So, wow, man. Well, hey. But, uh, it's, it's great here. I mean, I, I really love it. it the, there's a natural beauty to it that you just can't get over, you know? I believe, Every man. Day, 
It was wonderful. A little bit of heaven on earth. Well, yeah. listen, dude, while you are resting and recovering from your hand surgery, we have this awesome musical document to listen to, Eyes oh. Wide Open, which I want to talk about in a minute here. Just want to uh, remind people watching, if you have a question uh, for David, if you just want to say hi, let us know where you're watching from, feel free to write us in the comments section of Facebook or YouTube. We'll throw those comments up on air and get to those questions at the end of the show. If there are any, also wanted to quickly thank uh, David real quick, if I can, uh, the DC Jazz Fest, one of the people who make this show possible. The 16th annual DC Jazz Fest will be streaming live from our nation's capital Thursday, September 24th through Monday, September 28th. It will be bringing world-class jazz programming to the global stage for the very first time with over 20 performances from international superstars and homegrown talent alike. This year's festival will celebrate the real DC. Join them for five days of performances, interviews, and other exclusive jazz content. Watch for free on Gather by Events DC, fans.com, or the DC Jazz Fest Facebook page, and you can learn more uh, about the 2020 DC Jazz Fest at dcjazzfest.org. Right on. And I know, David, you growing up with the E Street Band, we're kind of splitting the New Jersey, Virginia thing. So DC yeah. is another good, another good scene, man. Right. Yeah. Always love playing in DC. Yeah. Yeah. Great musical legacy there. Duke, of course, you know, from Duke Ellington from Washington, DC. But hey, man, the new album is awesome eyes wide open and jeff right. if you could pull up the album cover of this thing this feels like you could have written the material yesterday man it is so timely just the themes you're dealing with i mean just look at that cover you know with the protests you know the police i'm curious when did this thing first start coming together for you and when did the bulk of the recording take place well it started coming together uh in this form probably uh just after the election uh when donald wow. trump won the election Wow. Right then, that was a real, <clears throat> excuse me, that was a real, um, a sort of push for me to finish it. You know, I'd been working on some of these songs in between touring for, you know, for years. But my way of working would be when I have time, when I have time to, uh, sorry, sorry, no worries. Popular guy, we get it, we get yeah. it. No, that's ridiculous. When I have, um, when I have time to work on stuff, in between touring, I, you know, I call musicians, I organize a session, and uh, I mean, so sometimes I would fly people. In fact, the drummer Adriano Molinari, um, who I met through touring with Zucchero, this Italian artist who you may know about, yeah, uh, we had a break in the tour, and I f I flew him over, and uh, you know, stayed at my place for like about a week, and we did all kinds of recording. Um, so I would do it like that, and then work would happen up again, and I would set it aside, never forgetting about it. And I, but I was sort of taking my sweet time, right, putting right. it together. And when when uh, the Trump thing happened, it was just like this is. I was so sad. I was heartbroken. I stayed in the studio for three days. I didn't wow. come out. I swear to you, I, I stayed in the studio for three days, and I tried to just not distract myself, but like I don't know, um, calm myself by just just trying to create. Well, that's like that. that's what's so amazing to me is the way you like channel those impulses into making music, you mm -hmm. know, and the the lyrics on this album obviously address specific themes, um, you know, but you've got tunes on there like War in Heaven, for example, you've got this tune yeah. War in Heaven, no yeah. lyrics, this is an instrumental tune yeah. that is in a lot of ways, I mean, you feel it the most, it's like the most poignant, you just, you really distilled the sense of like unrest and uncertainty um how do you how do you how do you channel feelings like that into music the way you did 
I know that's a pretty vague question. Yeah, it's, you nay, it was just so affecting, man. It was like so yeah. powerful. It's it's one of those things, and music is so subtle that it's hard to linguistically get a sense of what it actually feels like, you know, yeah. for an individual. But um, uh, you know, inspiration comes from all places. I mean, the title "War in Heaven." Yeah. Uh, a long time ago, I mean, ages and ages ago, I was reading the Bible on on my own. I did a sort of study of Christianity and Buddhism and Hinduism and 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 different religions. I think I was around 11 or 12 years old, and I, I read in the Bible, you know, Revelations is like an acid trip. If yeah. you just read the book of Revelations, it's really wild, right? Yeah. And so in there it says, da da da, it's describing, and such and such happened, and there was war in heaven. Right. And the very concept of war in heaven was like, wow, what must that be like? You know, and that, yeah. that just sort of visually got me. And, um, I don't know, the piece unfolded. And then I called up um, Vinny, Vinny, Vinny and I were, uh, Vinny Kaliuda and I were working mm -hmm. with Sting at the time. It was early 90s. And uh, we had a break from a tour. And he used to live in Connecticut back in the day when, okay. when I lived in Woodstock. And uh, I, we had enough time in his break. I rang him up. He came over to the house and we hung out for like three days and played a bunch of stuff. And he got it right away, the concept of it. I mean, his playing on the track is just, it's insane. Yeah. You know? How how beautiful he's playing the song. It's crazy. It, it's an embarrassment of riches for drums, man. You, you yeah. got Vinny, <laughs> Michael Bland, who played with I Prince. Did, yeah. I, right? scored. Yeah, I scored on the drums for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, big time. And, and they make the album, man. And and it's just it's just a perfect summation of grooves, man, from, from your entire career. Cause you know, I feel a lot of like fans of stuff. Remember stuff? Right. Uh, Richard T are gonna Definitely right. dig this. Yeah. Um, so it, it kind of had that New York 80s, 90s sound where like there was this parallel. I was just talking to Christian McBride about this. It was a great oh, period right. of New York in like the 80s, early 90s where there was like a parallel fusion, right? There was the fusion that was doing the rock stuff. There, and then there was, you know, the, the Breckers and the Richard T's laying it right. down with a different kind of fusion. And, mm -hmm. you know, your, your, your music is a nice bridge between the two. Yeah. Yeah, there was that fusion that was kind of, there was a kind of New York sophistication to it. Yeah. And like harmonically, you know? Yeah, yeah. Those are the guys that put their own sort of, you know, harmonic slant on it. Yeah. But then brought in those other elements. Yeah. Yeah. That was a really rich time. I mean, remember the time where all of that music was brand new and it was also a hot moment where it was commercially successful. Yes. Right? You know? Sliver of time. Both yeah. the records, weather report. Yeah. yeah. Some records, man. Yeah. You know, it was an amazing, uh, no, of course, all those bands like Genesis and Yes and Jell Giant. It, yeah, it was an incredible uh, time for us musically. Yeah. You find that coming back at all, you know, these huh. days in terms of crossover and audiences being a little more open-eared? I do. I yeah. think I do, you know. Yeah. But coming back in a different way, like a lot of music today, a lot of music what you hear on sort of radio, let's say, comedy what you hear the most on radio it's a bit it's got a bit of um god without sounding like a uh you know okay boomer or something <laughs> there's, there's, a, there's an element of sort of um staticness to it it lacks a certain dynamism and of course it's based on repetition right right and repetition can be very very interesting really interesting True. but what it's not i find is it doesn't have a certain 
gosh, here we go. It's hard to talk about. <laughs> it lacks a certain, I don't know, spontaneity or something. It all sounds a bit sort of, a bit of spontaneity and dynamism. It's all very right. kind of dynamically right. monodynamic. That's what right. I'm trying to say. Right. It's a bit monodynamic, a lot of a lot of stuff today. It can be very interesting and well done and all that. Uh, but there's no, as Whitney Balliet called it, there's no sound of surprise, you know, you even within repetition, you, you can go. discover some kind of there evolving element, but yeah, yeah, no, I agree. And who was it that said, I mean, I think they've attributed this quote to everybody who's ever played yet. What is it? Talking about music is like, like dancing about architecture, you know? It's oh just, yeah. Uh, Frank Zappa. <laughs> Frank Zappa. Uh, yeah. I yeah. Think that's Zappa quote. It's brilliant. There you go. There you yeah. go. So uh, we appreciate you, uh, you know, being on here and trying to do it, at least I've you yeah, know, well, I've, I've made a career worth, of trying to do it, and yeah. it's always worth the effort. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Very cool. Well, let, let's take it back, man, um, to the beginning. I want to know because we hear this city tossed around so much, you know, in public. Asbury Park, you know, Asbury Park. It's like mm -hmm. you know, rock iconography. I want to know like what the scene was like in Asbury Park. Like, take me back there. What clubs were you going to? What record stores were you going to? What was what were you listening to in your house? You know, wow. Well, the scene in Asbury Park back in the day. The one thing about it was it was safe. Oh, okay. It wow. was physically safe. You know, there wasn't yeah. a big gang scene in Asbury yeah. Park in those times in the sixties, uh, early sixties, mid sixties. So it wasn't a big gang scene. So if you were, you know, kind of careful about yourself, um, you didn't have that. To worry about much and musically there weren't there was only one place to play at really which was the upstage you know which is why <laughs> it wasn't like there were like four places like upstage where all that was going on that was really the sort of central place right and um but as a scene it was just uh you know it was the 60s man it was like that club was like the bottom floor bottom level of it first you had to walk up a flight of stairs it was over top of a shoe store Tom McCann shoe store. And then the first level you come to was a coffee house, all acoustic, just folk music and folk singers like that. Walk up another flight of stairs, it was psychedelic. The walls were, it was like black and <laughs> psychedelic painting on the walls, you know, black lights and everything, and really some serious electric music. And um, it was the place where, you know, if you wanted to play, if you thought you were good enough to get up on a stage and play with someone, that was your, that was your shot, you know. Proving ground. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and uh, yeah. I, luckily, I just I had um, I had the kind of confidence to where um, I sort of maybe yeah I didn't I didn't have any fear about it, and maybe I had so much confidence that I didn't sort of think anything other than like the most natural thing in the world to get up on stage with some other players, even people you don't know. Yeah. So what? We just met, you know. Let's play. Yeah. So that was like your first performance. You had the keyboard there and sitting in at the. At the coffee shop was that the start of things well that hooked? was part of like you know i knew that i wanted to do it all the time yeah that was yeah. the start of you know an outlet you know cool. uh, away from the house and my other uh neighborhood because actually the town i grew up in is belmar okay east street is in belmar but belmar is about eight miles away from asbury park uh, you know or not. sometimes if i couldn't hitchhike or get a ride i would just walk to asbury park eight and, miles. Uh, wow yeah, that's not yeah. <laughs> <laughs> worth it for the gig, man. It's worth it for the gig. Yeah. And um, talk about your own like history with piano, because I understand you started. You were trained classically, like a lot of piano players. You were trained classically, yeah. right? Because you're yeah. that was what was in the house. Yeah. Parents were musicians. Yeah. 
No, my mother was a musician. Oh, okay. My mother professionally was a school teacher. Okay. But when she was younger, she had had the opportunity to have some really good uh, classical lessons. My mother, it's funny, my mother and all my aunts, I have three other aunts, somehow uh, they all got classical piano lessons and they all could play really well and sight read really well. I mean, my mother's to this day, I mean, she's passed away, but she was a better sight reader than me to this day. She could just open up anything wow. and just have at it. It was amazing, yeah. really inspirational. So it was from watching her play that really inspired me. And then she taught me for a year. And then I had really about uh, eight more years of lessons with uh, a guy named James Connell, who was uh, like a classical virtuoso at the time. And okay. uh, but the thing about it, all while I was studying classical and listening and being exposed to it, all these other influences were happening at the same time, like the right. jazz influence, which was really from my father very strongly because he appreciated classical music, but that wasn't his sort of cup of tea, you know? Right. He was deeply into jazz. He loved um, all the organ players. He introduced me to the players like Jimmy Smith and Jack right, McMahon, yeah. Blue Holmes. And all those people used to come through Asbury Park. There was a place called the Orchid Lounge okay. where the real, the professional, like the, not the kids trying to start out and get somewhere, but the <laughs> professional players used to play. It was called the Orchid Lounge and it was a jazz club. And uh, my dad used to take me to see everybody there. I mean, I saw Kenny Burrell, um, every nice organ player, like Jimmy Smith, you know, all those such people. Such a Rocky strong, Smith. such a strong legacy of jazz organ in, yeah. you know, yeah. South Jersey, Philadelphia, in that area. Yep. Yeah. 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 So uh, all that, you know, and so at the same time, I'm listening to classical music and I'm studying classical piano. And then I have two older brothers. Uh, and their influence were like uh, rock and roll. And, and uh, my older brother was very into avant-garde jazz. Oh, and cool. uh, my middle brother, uh, we're like three years apart. Um, we very much share the same taste, but he turned me on to um, rock and roll things that I wasn't familiar with. So I was, I was like the benefit of being the youngest member in a house where everybody had their own distinct, yeah, new, man. you know, Nice little potpourri of sounds, man. And, and and you get that vibe from, you know, the group that you would inevitably go on to join, you know, the E Street Band with, with mm -hmm. Bruce Springsteen. You get the sense that all different kinds of music was in everybody's ears all the time. Yeah. Um, so how did the individual pieces of that band come together, you know? Ooh. <laughs> How did that band come? Well, I'll tell you that night. I've been asked this many times, but you know, what was it? The uh, when was the first night you met Bruce? So it was one of those nights where I was walking to uh, to uh, Asbury Park, <clears throat> summertime, and uh, I get to the club. I walk up to the top of the stairs. I see Gary Talent standing in stairs. Gary and I had met a few weeks before. We had done a record session, uh, recording session for somebody. I don't even remember. But he was a bass player in a session. I was a keyboard player, and we got along great right away. So I'm walking up there, and I see Gary, and Gary's standing next to Bruce. Okay. And Gary and Bruce are organizing the next uh, round of you know jam sessions that's going to happen. Okay. So I get up there. Gary introduces me to Bruce. You know, I shake his hand. Hey, nice to meet you. And he says, uh, "Do you want to play in this next? Uh, you know, when the next jam thing starts on?" I said, "Yeah." Well, this thing went on for like about three or four hours, you know, once once we started playing. And there were people who would come up on the stage, play for a while, and then leave, and other people would come up. Right. And uh, this went on until about, uh, this place closed at five in the morning. Upstate. 
So five in the morning, we're walking out and we're walking uh, towards our cars or our bicycles or whatever we were doing. And uh, Bruce uh, goes to me, he goes, you know, I'm, he was in this band called Steel Mill, which was very popular, very famous locally. Right. He says, I'm going to stop that band and I'm thinking of starting something new. Uh, would you be interested in, uh, in being in the band? And I said, absolutely. And uh, that was the sign. And that didn't become the E Street Band. It didn't wasn't called the E Street Band until later. Gotcha. But that was the beginning of me playing with him. And then Gary, he asked Gary to do it. And, uh, you know, on and on. And then uh, Danny and Vinny. And then we met Clarence. Clarence came along. And that was the, uh, you know, the icing on the cake. You know? Right, right. Did you get the sense meeting Bruce that was like, uh, oh man, this you know this kid has potential. I mean, he's good, really good songwriter. <laughs> Bruce back in those days, man, he was the hottest uh, guitar player in the area. The kind of oh, okay. two, yeah, he was like a gunslinger on the guitar. It was amazing. Nice, so like two nice. or three guys who could really play stuff. Nice, and, yeah, and take solos and really well. And he was playing at the time a more heavy, a more heavy metalish kind of form of music. It didn't sound like the first uh, songs of the E Street Band. It was quite different. Oh, but no, he was again locally famous. He was Bruce before he was Bruce. As a chopster, because oh, I feel like a lot of the guys who become songwriters and vocalists way yeah. before he ever made a record. Yeah, he was, yeah, he was locally the cat. Yeah, way before he ever made a record. So I knew who he was. You know, yeah. when I'm walking up the stairs, I just hadn't actually met him or played with him, but. Yeah, and you do. Yeah, you can be around the guy for like about five minutes when he's <laughs> like, you know, got a guitar in his hand or sitting at the piano and singing or something. You know that that's uh, that's the yeah. real deal, you know. And did you connect over jazz stuff too? Did like did he have, you know? We connected jazz. over all kinds of stuff, even over classical yeah. things. You know, yeah. Bruce, Bruce listens to and is aware of a lot more music than you might uh, expect because of. Oh yeah, no, I don't doubt composes. Yeah, yeah. But um, no, we connected on on uh, everything musically. Yeah, very nice. And you know, it's as you were guys were recording those first few albums. You know, the critics kind of came upon this term. You know, what was it like the Jersey Shore sound? Right. Um, it, do you think that's a thing? And do you could could you possibly explain what? Ent I mean, because you guys were the chemists behind the Jersey Shore sound. So Ooh. you know, what do you consider the Jersey Shore sound? Well, I mean, calling us chemists is like almost giving us a little too much credit. You know, <laughs> it wasn't quite that thoughtful. It's just like um, there was a a, um, a similarity between what musically what we all liked. There's a certain part of music that we all liked and listened to and like wanted yeah. to be able to play, you know, yeah, influenced by. And I think maybe that's the thing was that we did have a sort of musical like okay we're, we're going along we have different degrees of skill and different stuff but we all like this same area of music and would really like to be playing it and playing it as well as we can um and again um you know there weren't like three or four guys like bruce around there weren't uh three or four guys like me around if i right. say that mostly you know no definitely happened to be uh and same thing there were not like three or four people like clarence clemens no right way. He, he was he's a one of a kind yeah, yeah. so yeah. i just think that we fortunately it was luck or good fortune to uh have met each other when we did and yeah. uh to just be even even the same area geographically i think it's just uh a happy twist of fate really it is man it's one of those things like the founding fathers like you know 
they put all these beautiful minds in one place at the same time. It was, it was awesome. And, and the amazing thing about this group um, was you guys, like you said, you guys were all chopmeisters. I mean, you all different kinds of music, um, you know, but at the same time, you were able to tap into this vein of popular appeal, you know, and you knew not to overcomplicate things. Um, I remember I was talking with uh, Miami Steve um, mm -hmm. about the recording session for 10th Avenue Freeze Out, and there were mm -hmm. some heavy cats. You know, I think Randy Brecker was in the horn section for that, you know, and right. trying to do all these jazzy, you know, lines, which I'm sure sounded great. But Steve said basically, you know, let's just tap into the groove of this thing. Let's keep this mellow. Let's strike a balance. Let's keep the focus on the song, everything in service right. of the song, right? And that's you know. it. That's really, that's it. You have to serve the song. Yeah. First and foremost. And, and yeah. you have the hippest idea in the world. It could be amazing. But if the idea doesn't serve the songs, doesn't right. serve the interpretation of the song, then, you know, yeah. you're better off not, not doing it. Yeah. And I mean, Bruce and you and the E Street Band, I mean, you guys really embody that for sure. Um, tell me about, you know, because obviously that was kind of like, a, a, you know, a launch pad for you and the stuff you did afterward was awesome, you know, with tone. But tell me about the decision to leave. When did that happen? That came out after Born to Run was released, right? Yeah. Let me yeah. think. The decision to leave, I'm trying to tell it to you right now. Wow. I remember it was summertime, and I believe so, yeah. It was somewhere around the release of it. It's a little cloudy there, actually. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I, I had a talk with Bruce and said the record company had offered me a contract is what it came down to. And uh, they we did a long run at the bottom line, like a five-night run at the bottom line Okay. Uh, of that band. And uh, during one of those nights, someone from uh, – uh, Epic Records. Like Bruce was signed to Columbia. Epic was a division of Columbia. So someone from the record label came backstage during one of those shows and uh, offered me some studio time. They'd heard the um, demo tapes that I did uh, when I lived in Virginia for a couple of years. Oh, cool. And then so that all developed. And then uh, I did the studio time. Uh, they finally said, yeah, we really like it and we'll offer you a contract. And then around that time, I said, I knew I was going to do it. And I didn't feel comfortable doing my thing and sort of doing Bruce's thing at the same time, because I wanted to put the same kind of focus and energy into what I was doing as what the way that he was doing it. You know? Okay. Yeah. And, uh, you know, but he totally understood, you know, he understood like, this is a great shot. And, um, you know, he's always been, even after I left and when I was with the label, he used to get in touch and like check up and make sure that everybody at the label was like treating me right. You know, wow. no problems or anything, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and I remember after the first record was done, the Forest of Feelings was done. He was living in Long Branch, and we got together uh, at his house. He was living by himself in this little beach house, and uh, we listened to the whole record, listened to every track of my of Forest of Feelings. Sat there in the living room, listened to every track, and we like, talked about it. He was pointing out things that he really liked about it, and uh, yeah, it was. Right it on, was man. Yeah, no, I mean, and, and you appeared on a few more albums after the fact, right? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. Um, you could just tell, you know, that the stuff you were doing with Tone, you were like, you know, flexing a little bit of a different muscle. Um, mm -hmm. Beautiful fusion feel, beautiful, you know, jazz feel. Um, and, you know, as a band leader, you were really laying it down, man. Um, 
I'm curious as to, you know, some of your, specifically your jazz influences, because, you know, you were young, you got your start in the E Street Band, and here was your chance to do your thing, kind of develop your own sound. Can I, so I'm curious as to the sonic influences that went into the development of that style. So from a jazz perspective, who were the keyboardists that you really, you know, kind of idolized? Oh, that's easy, man. The, the big three were yeah. Keith Jarrett, yeah. Chick Corea, and Herbie Hancock. Everybody wow. else take a beat. That's <laughs> called the big three, man. Big yeah. three, man. I really, I, I did my best to really, uh, I was inspired by all of them. How can you not be? I mean, yeah. playing some of the most gorgeous and inventive piano playing of all time. Yeah. Uh, but those are the, my three uh, pianists that I really. Um, and know. super versatile. Did you ever have a chance to, because they were contemporaries. I mean, did you ever have a chance to uh, play with any of those cats? I, I got a chance to play with Chick Corea, actually. Oh, right on. Yeah. Right on. Really nice. His um, it's now his wife, uh, Gail Moran. Yep. Uh, used to sing. Uh, she did some backing vocals on a couple of uh, my records, and uh, he one day he came to pick her up from rehearsal. We were rehearsing at um, what was that place called uh, in New York City? Uh, oh, uh, SIR, okay. SIR, Greek rehearsal place. Okay. And he came to pick her up at the end of the day. And uh, we were rehearsing in one room, getting ready to go into our, and Mob Vision Orchestra was across the hall in the other room rehearsing. Wow. And uh, so he came in, I think he stuck his head in there, said hey to John for a minute, he came in. And uh, we got into this jam session. We had all this keyboard set up and uh, we just went on for quite a while, you know, but Chick has always been a big, um, a big supporter of mine, you know, and very, uh, very complimentary and uh, yeah. But you know, I've I've seen Keith Jarrett play live, yeah, uh, and I've seen Herbie play live, but uh, those those three, I mean, that's a lifetime of, of influence there. If there were only those three guys playing piano, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's so true. Life. Yeah, you'd have you know, and, and there's just like I said, so versatile. I mean, the stuff with Keith, who will sit down and do not only a classical. You know, concert, but it's a totally improvised, you know, mm. concert, and then turn around and be playing Rhodes, you know, and Miles Davis, like '70s electric band. I mean, uh, the sickest thing in the world is that one time those guys were in the same band together. I know. Band during that. I know. Are you kidding me? It's insane. You know, all those cats under the same roof, man. Speaking of that classical connection, uh, just the other day on YouTube, I saw there's um, uh, Keith Jarrett and Chick Corea uh, with the Tokyo Symphony Orchestra playing a Mozart a piece for two pianos. Wow. And this is, they, must, they both look a lot younger than they are now. I don't know exactly what year it was done, but yeah. it's a total classical thing. And it's like set up and the way they do the camera shot, they split it. So you can sort of see both of them playing at the same time, two like nine foot pianos facing each other with the orchestra. But to see, you know, these guys that we, people think of them as their jazz master geniuses. Right. But also studied deeply that technique of classical piano. Totally. And that's what sets in that same thing with Herbie Hancock. That's what sets those players apart, I think. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And what a lot of people don't realize too is that they were also kind of like sound engineers during that time because unlike today where you just press a button on a keyboard and you get these cool sounds back yeah. then as you know you were had to create with these synthesizers these unique sounds sense. you know it was like switchboard operators with the moog you're plugging in wires yeah. and you, yeah. you're creating the sound that's coming out of the instrument so all those yeah. iconic sounds you hear out of the odyssey or like the i don't know i don't know the exact yeah. instruments but yeah. they were making those sounds you know and they I, were. 
the, I don't, those keyboardists, I don't think, get enough credit for creating sounds that have become iconic. Now, were you ever really heavily into the, you know, patches and the tech totally. of all the stuff? Yeah, Indeed. absolutely. <laughs> you had I, to be, I guess. You know, I actually wish I had still had some of the old, old gear um, back in those days. I don't yeah. have it. No, I enjoy that. And I think that's a part of a learning curve because apart from being a, I mean, I also consider myself a synthesis. Right. I'm not a keyboard player. I can play anything with a keyboard, but I'm also a synthesis. I'm right. also interested in sound construction and, yeah. and how you layer sounds and combine sounds together right. Right. and how you can in live. The thing I like to do live most of all is to, when you program a synthesizer for someone's show, for instance, Sting's going on tour, you okay. get the set list of what we're going to do. Each song on, on the, the way that I use 88 note weighted key synthesizers, the Yamaha montage specifically, you program each song is like a map. Yeah. And on that map, you can subdivide the keyboard, you can layer it, you can split it up, you can have all these special things going on. Right. But that's a lot of work. I mean, yes. I've multiple tours for Sting and for Peter Gabriel. For Peter, imagine Peter Gabriel, <laughs> the, the sophistication sonically. And the complexity of some of that music is incredible. Yeah. It's a big job. But then after you set it all up, you have to remember that map. You have to, and that's where a lot of rehearsing comes in. You have to remember what you did, how you set it up. You have visual cues, of course, on your instrument to see it. But when you're performing like that, you have to remember what's going on. Like the singer has to remember the words right out of auto cue, or like, you know, right. the drummer has to remember where you are without paper, you know? Yeah. But it's a ton of fun, man. It's just unbelievable what you can do live in real time with a properly set up synthesizer. It's crazy. It's amazing. And that's what I want to stress, you know, people listening. You go and listen to, like you're saying, a keyboardist on tour with a major artist. Some of those albums from the 70s, those fusion albums, that soundscape that you hear, it is not just a keyboardist pressing a button. They created yeah. those sounds, you know, yeah. they, they molded, they sculpted those sounds. So, you know, very cool, man. It's, Dave, you got roosters back there, man? Yes. Oh, they're <laughs> Yeah, there's roosters are kind of wild here in, in Hawaii. And, oh, very uh, cool. Sorry. Yeah, they can oh. do this. I like it. It is a dream of mine to live in a place where I can have like raised chickens and goats and but not too far from like a jazz club. So I don't know where on the earth that is, but <laughs> um so with Sting, man, were you were you on tour? Were you touring with Sting before this whole lockdown kicked into gear? Uh, the last touring I did was thing that was probably uh, da, 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 it's seventeen. Oh, okay. Uh, Twenty seventeen, we did something in Vegas. Okay. Uh, but no, I wasn't doing that when before the lockdown happened. I was really uh, I had a, a, a project called Moshalu with Dennis Chambers and Jeff Berlin okay. and uh, Noy. We uh, we didn't do a record. We did a, a project in Cuba. We did a really nice uh, like a PR thing. And then we did a brief East Coast tour. We did about seven or eight shows uh, from New York to Chicago and kind of back. And then we did, uh, this is the last time I was on a stage live anywhere was in Europe. And uh, we did five festivals. Okay. Like uh, Romania, Amsterdam, somewhere else, somewhere else. <clears throat> the last place was in Germany. Okay. And, uh, and then that was sort of the end of that project. And so since uh, that was July of last year, um, I after that, I came home and finished the record. And then oh, you know, okay. I also moved here and all that. So right. okay. I haven't been alive in, in a while. I'm, I'm, I'm dying to. 
once this uh, heals. Yeah. yeah, and we hope so, man. No, Oz is great. Oz Noy, the guitarist, the stuff that he does yeah. with those quarter tones and kind of yeah, in between right. pitches. And so yeah. hopefully we'll be able to uh, hear some material and, and, from that. You know, the, the, uh, the whole sort of impetus for me being involved in it was really that uh, Dennis Chambers was had agreed to. Yeah, yeah, know, yeah. Uh, just fantastic. Very cool. How did you link up with Sting, though? Um, Ooh, Sting was a phone call um, <clears throat> in 91. I'd met him years ago because okay. uh, when I was in Jack Bruce Band with uh, Jack Bruce and Billy Cobham and uh, Dave Clemson, uh, the manager of that band, John Sher, was a big East Coast concert promoter. Gotcha. And uh, every time he, uh, oh, let me tell it right, he was a concert promoter. And um, whenever the police came to the States, they always played like the Meadowlands. And I would get invited down to the show, right? Okay. But I really met him. Uh, I really met him in Germany at a TV show called Rock Palast. Okay. Oh and yeah, I know Rock Palast. Yeah, yeah. The bill was uh, uh, Graham Parker and the Rumor, Jack Bruce and Friends, and the Police. Wow. And we finished our sound check. Uh, TV sound checks are kind of like really like boring and kind of long. It can be weird, but we finished our sound check. And as we were doing it, we looked over the side of the stage and all three of the police were just standing there checking out the whole sound check. Because yeah, like Sting was a fan of Jack Bruce. I don't think he knew me from Adam, but <laughs> Jack Bruce. Right. And Stewart's a fan of Billy Cobham and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So that, that was the sort of first introduction. And then after that, every time they played in America on the East Coast, I got invited to come see the show. Wow. So when it becomes like <clears throat> 91, he's working on Soul Cages album and i get a phone call uh, uh, from uh, his technician saying that can i come to italy and help him finish a record because kenny kirkland who had been doing the the record had sort of gone missing for a while and no one could find him this thing was really wanted to finish the record so mm -hmm. he asked me to fly to um, pisa italy and then that was the first time of recording with him I, we did like about i think four or five songs on that album maybe more yeah. Wow. An Another guy who I've heard just open eared to all kinds of music. Yeah. Loves his jazz. Yeah. And, you know, again, chops that, you know, you wouldn't necessarily uh, you know, that you that we may take for granted because he's such a good songwriter and such a he's good singer. Incredible you know the yeah. thing too is the bass chops, the really unique thing about his writing and uh is that he comes up with the most imaginative bass lines yeah in a song like this song like a uh, uh fortress around your heart uh -huh. um, just there's too many examples of the bass lines are like yeah. really really original that's not yeah. some usual but again he can pull it off as a composer that's his composerness coming through but he has the chops to uh to to do that but he's yeah like you say i mean he's into music from other planets i mean nothing <laughs> sort of right. escapes the interest you know right yeah and well we can walk it back a little farther to jack bruce because mm -hmm. i can imagine it must have been a trip for you to play with him because you you idolized cream growing up right oh, my, yeah absolutely yeah. <laughs> my favorite bands and yeah. i was thinking about it the other day i got to work with two of the three members of what was one of my Favorite bands back then, you know, working with Jack first, and then years later, I got to work with Eric for a while. Wow. And, uh, yeah, but it was great working with Jack, you know. And he really actually, I'm singing on this new record, Eyes Wide Open. Oh, yeah, you are. Yeah. And he, along with other people, 
uh, really inspired me to sing. He actually taught me a lot about the the technique, like where your breath comes from and how yeah. to have your intonation and you yeah. know, all that kind of stuff. But he was inspirational to, uh, you know, to be honest, to be in a rehearsal room and like very close to him and like listen to him sing and walk and play at the same time. He had this voice. His voice was like a combination of a, the, a, a Scottish soul singer, but like in the in the in the in the vein of say Otis Redding, we love yeah. Otis Redding, but it also had this operatic quality, huh. you know. Yeah, it's strong operatic quality is a, a a unique combination. Balance of dirty and clean, man. Yeah, yeah. it was and, and it dramatic. Was and very dramatic. Passionate. Yeah, very yeah. Very no, I love it. And just a guy genre didn't matter. You know, it it you know. It was just a word, you know, yeah. you, you could do anything. Um, yeah, you're singing a lot on the new album. Is this your kind of vocal debut? It is, actually. Yeah. You yeah. know, I, I, what happened was I really got serious about it when I was working with Seal back in, uh, I worked with Seal for about three years in the late 90s, I think 97, 98, 99, somewhere in there. And again, someone who really will just blow your mind if you're standing next to this person and he starts singing. Yeah. The sound of his voice, the, again, the, the beautiful way that he sings, it really inspired me. So he had a vocal coach that he traveled with during the session. It was for the album uh, Human Beings. Okay. We recorded it in uh, Vancouver. And uh, he said, you know, if you're interested, I'll get you some, give you some time with my vocal coach. He showed me all these great exercises to develop your voice and, you know, get all the crap off your vocal cords and stuff. Yeah. And then I, st I really started working on it. And then I had a few occasions to sing uh, backing vocals on other people's records. Like one time I got hired by a Hall & Oates to do a, uh, a session for one of their albums. I think it was a Christmas album. Oh, Hall wow. & Oates on. And I played keys on it, but yeah. then they got the other part and they said, hey, do you want to, you know, we're going to do some kind of gospel background parts on a few songs. You want to sing them? They said, sure. And uh, myself and the three of us, um, John and... Um, uh, and then I forget who else was in it too. But it's like like four of us. We did it live, you know. That's wild. So backing singers, and I had another yeah. a few more opportunities to sing backing vocals on on other people's records. And then the more you do it, the more confidence you get. Yeah. And like I say, in in, in uh, once the election happened and Trump won, and I had all that time in my studio, you know, I, I just really dug in and uh, and uh, got better and better. I, I lost any uh, degree of um, to say shyness or you right. know, something Inhibition. about yeah. it. Right yeah. No, it just can't shut me up from singing now. It's like, yeah, man. Well, so, and these are all original lyrics too. Yes, they, they are. Wrote these lyrics. And yeah. that is an art in and of itself, you know? Well, and, and so, you know, but, but you've written lyrics before. Yes. Yeah. Well, I wrote all the yeah. lyrics for the tone albums. You know? Right. Right. So you've written lyrics for who, what makes a good lyric, you know, and who are some of your favorite contemporary songwriters? Wow. I know. I know. <laughs> These fuzzy questions out there. I got to say, um, again, not to not because he's a, a friend or I work with him, but I think Bruce is an amazing yeah. songwriter yeah. and lyrically very, very strong. Yes. Very strong lyrically. Um, oh, gosh. I go back to, I mean, you know, it, it never gets old for me, but look at Bob Dylan. Yeah. If you really get into Dylan and take some of that, some of that periods of writing, uh, if you take it literally, it can be quite trippy. Right. Uh, you know, 
but I mean, that's just genius stuff. And I guess what makes it, what makes a great song is I think it's a, there's a degree of sincerity that yes. will reach a person, right. you know, whether it's a simple song or a complex song, uh, if it's got a lot of words or a few words, there's something about it. Uh, you know, I was listening to the other day, uh, the times they are changing and it was yeah. like his original thing and it's all fast and energetic and everything. But you can tell the, the the words are profound, and you can tell that he really means it. Yeah, what he's saying, you know, yeah. it doesn't matter that it's like a it's just a voice and a guitar. That sort of just shines through everything—the sincerity and the the uh, the the depth behind what is being said. Yeah, totally, and that's why you know other people can try to write songs like Bob Dylan, but they don't sound like, you know, Bob Dylan songs, you know, because there was a sincerity. And whereas his stuff, just like you're saying, it's like ornate, you know, super poetic stuff. It still rings true the same way, like a Randy Newman lyric, which is a little more down to earth, rings just as true. Or a Bruce tune, you know, it's just, these are concrete images, but they just, ah, they- Tom Waits. Tom Waits. Yeah, yeah, exactly, man. But uh, yeah, no, the the new album is great. And like I say, it, it's just, it, it feels like you wrote it just like about this moment, which is crazy to hear that it has been brewing, you know, since, you know. You know what it is though? It's a kind of a sad commentary on how yeah. long it's been. Brewing. Right, I was, yeah. It's nothing new, unfortunately. Yeah, I know. You know. That song, Urban Psalm Number no. 3, I wrote that after Rodney King got beat, you know. Wow. Yeah. So that's going back a ways. Whenever yeah. that happened, that was originally written. I hung on to it. I rearranged it. You know, uh, I dug it up. I, I resung it. It's the, all the, the lyrics are original. <laughs> Every word yeah. in that's original. I did. I resung the lead vocal and the backgrounds, and and then I rearranged it. Uh, like last uh, October, November of last year, there's a whole section. I got yeah. the idea to add Dr. King's speech. Yeah. Um, the idea to add the chants of the college kids and all that. So yeah. it's kind of old and kind of brand new at the same time. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That is so true. But like I say, at the same time, super, super musical. Um, This band, you know, absolutely grooves. This is powerful stuff, David. Really, really good album, man. Thank you, man. Thank you very much. And listen, hey, I just want to say thank you for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. If people want to, like, follow along, know what's going on with you, what's the best place for them to do that? Uh, They can go to the website. They can go to uh, The Orchard. Okay. Um, and uh, the record's available. Um, you know, there's a video out for the title track, Eyes Wide Open, and we just released a video for the second uh, track, uh, In the Middle of the Night. They're like lyric oh, cool. videos. So yeah. at the end of those videos, you'll see everywhere it's available, but it's like Apple Music, Amazon, you know, all over the place. Right on. Well, we will add those videos when we post this on our site. Oh, great. Um, yeah, Fantastic. we'll add those videos there. We'll add links um, to buy the album. And uh, yeah, man, David, this has been a pleasure, dude. Thank you. Thank My you so pleasure. much for doing this. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I will see you backstage. I'm going to sign off with people watching at home. All right. So long, David. All right. So thank you once again to our guest, David Sanchez. The new album, Eyes Wide Open, came out in April, so it's available now. Now it's time to buy it. Uh, go buy the album. Go buy some merch. Let's support these artists. And uh, yeah, that'll do it for today's episode. Uh, if you like what you saw, follow us on Facebook. Subscribe to us on YouTube. Hit that notification button so that you know whenever we go live. Uh, we are running a subscription offer right now for just 99 cents per month. 
for three months. You can unlock unlimited digital access to our site. Plus, we'll enroll you to receive our forthcoming print issue, which, get this, everyone, is all about jazz and film. Jazz in the movies, jazz documentaries, uh, actors who love jazz. That is coming out in December. And like I say, you subscribe, you get unlimited di digital access for three months, and we'll enroll you to receive a complimentary print issue of Jazz on Film when that thing comes out in December. That'll do it for today's episode. Thank you so much for watching, everyone. I'll see you next time. Bye.